Hello, friends. Welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes. Since starting the Nexus newsletter, many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop, and we have. After a few weeks of those wonderful conversations, I realized I needed to record and share them with our growing community. So here we are. The Nexus podcast is born. This is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together. I'm super excited to bring you episode two, a conversation with Joe Amador of Amador Consulting. Joe and I talk regularly, so this is our chance to catch up on what we've been thinking about over the last several weeks. We flow through a range of topics, including Joe's career path and how Amador Consulting came to be, Joe's experience building energy apps for JCI's Panoptics platform circa 2012, and why he thinks the iPhone for buildings isn't a thing. Next, we get into strategies for building owners to get started with smart buildings and whether there's room for more startups in the analytics space and much, much more. You can find Joe online on LinkedIn and at amadorconsulting.com. Both of these can be found in the show notes on nexus.substack.com. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast Episode 2 with Joe Amador. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Hey, James. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. So why don't we start by um, you introducing yourself a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. So Joe Amador, uh, smart building consultant, product market strategy consultant, really. And uh, specifically what I do, that that's a mouthful and it probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. But uh, I work with a variety of different stakeholders or market participants in the smart building space, most notably software vendors themselves who need help on the product or market strategy side. So they don't have a product manager they need more help on product management, or they just need somebody with a view of the market to help with some of those strategic things like competitive analysis, market sizing, go-to market strategy. And uh, I've also worked, though, and more so recently with investors who are looking at investments in the space and saying, you know, we really could use a third party to help us validate um, all, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, how will this company succeed in the market? What are some reasons why they might win, why they might not win? So I can do that. And then I've worked with some utilities. Same idea, you know, they're trying to access more knowledge about the smart building space. And when I say smart buildings, I guess just upfront to clarify, I tend to think of technology to operate the building. So not so much construction tech, not so much asset management technologies, you know, let's move away from spreadsheets to manage the financial return of our building. It's more HVAC, lighting, maybe elevators, security, access control, all the things that, you know, in your great newsletter, you're also writing about and talking about analytics, data-driven, software plus services. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So the way I was looking at your website and the way that, like, if I would throw that back at you and summarize it, you're like the expert on this industry for software firms and investors that they're bringing the technology side of things, but they don't necessarily understand boots on the ground, how buildings are yeah. operated, that sort, of, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and there can be a number of scenarios of how a company or why a company would call me. It can be we 
are launching a new product or an adjacent product, and it's a space that we in-house don't necessarily have a lot of domain expertise or don't have as much as we would like, you clearly, Joe, have that knowledge. You can help supplement our internal team. It can be, you know, we're a small lean team and we're just falling behind on certain things we want to get done. I'm the founder. I was doing some of this. Our company has grown a little bit. I have more responsibilities. I want to bring you on to help support. Uh, In many cases, it looks a little bit like what a standard kind of management consultant would be doing, though I'm very focused on this industry. But yeah, it's a good readback. Okay. And just, I think this is a good segue into kind of the next question, but what is a product manager? (laughs) Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, product managers are pretty common in the technology industry. They're pretty common in a lot of industries, and they're not as maybe common in buildings and, and real estate technology. But really what you're trying to do is on one hand, be the customer advocate or the user advocate. So you're trying to be as knowledgeable as you possibly can on what the person deriving value out of the product or the solution, because it could be a service, for example, but you're supposed, you're trying to be an expert on what they actually need, want, what has value. Uh, You're also trying to balance between technical capabilities. Can we build this market viability? Can we sell it? And can figure out where's the balance there, if you will. Mm -hmm. So you sometimes there are cases where companies will call me and they'll have great development team, great salespeople, and not much in between. And that can be a difficult way to develop product because every customer, if you just ask them, what do you want? What features do you want to buy? They might all have different features. If you turn it around and say, this is what our product does. This is where our product is going. This is why there's value in what we're doing. All the salespeople might be able to go to all of the prospects and sell to all of them or many of them with that message. But if you don't have that message, it kind of falls back to, well, these people, this client says they want that and this prospect says they want that. So you're really trying to to kind of be in the center of it all. And there are cases where companies will come to me and, and actually need exactly that type of support. There are other cases where they have somebody doing that. It's just some of the inputs to help inform that. Because as a product manager, you're not just talking to customers and prospects on one side and talking to developers. You also want to have an eye to what's happening in the market. What are the dynamics? We look at it, it right now, I think, and we'll talk maybe about this a little bit more, but given global pandemic, more investment, I think, in, in HVAC because being able to cycle more air, ventilate more air, that's just going to be, you have to do it. So that's not something that individual customers might be asking for, or maybe they are, maybe more will in the future. But as a product manager, you want to look at how does that impact our business? I mean, what are the positives? What are the negatives? And then even just a desire to cut operating costs. If you're worried about cash flow, if you're worried about overall being able to, the revenue your business is bringing in might be a good time to revisit cash flow, which or, or operating costs, which could be energy savings and, and operational savings. And products uh, in this space certainly can help with that. Cool. Okay. So it sounds like you performed that role, the product management role at JCI, and then you went to Lucid, and then yep. you started your own thing. So yep. will you take us through that progression and kind of the yeah. origin story of Amador yeah. Consulting? Of course, I'd be happy to. So I, I joined Johnson Controls 2011, so almost 10 years ago now. Uh, as a product manager, they were, or we were at the time building a cloud-based building management solution. So now very common. We were one of the first, I would say, but not maybe the first, but one of the first to launch a product. The whole idea was Let's sit on top of individual building automation systems across a campus or really across the world and provide a lot of the analytical driven or analytical type 
features that you're not necessarily going to put into a building automation system, or maybe they just don't make sense in a building automation system. So worked on that. I was specifically focused on energy management, energy reporting, and measurement and verification. So measurement and verification, very common kind of framework to monitor and really measure value, if you will, energy improvements. But the product itself was wider than that. And we can talk a little bit more about that. I joined Lucid uh, and I was the first product hire they made and they were kind of building very similar products. They had just raised a series B round. And uh, so obviously we're hiring a lot. And I saw it as, as an opportunity just to one, work at a smaller company. I was generally, I had worked at small companies in the past, even much smaller than Lucid. I tended to like it. I tended to not be so worried about the, you know, am I going to have a job next week or not, which I think now is maybe just a concern all of us have in, in some way or another. But I was there for a couple of years had a good run. But when I left, I was actually organically, all of this came, came about, Amador Consulting. I was calling around to my network just to figure out you know, what opportunities are out there, what jobs might, might there be. And a lot of people in my network, which at the time were, were more the vendor side, solution provider side, a lot of people said things like, I don't have a job for you, but I have a project or there's a project you could help me with. And, and that at first just sounded like a good way to make some money, keep doing something other than just looking for jobs and uh, just staying in the industry, staying connected. But what I found was I actually was finding really interesting projects, really interesting work. And after you know maybe nine months of doing this, I thought, well, all this is right now, me just calling people I know or getting referred to by people I know. There was no outbound marketing whatsoever. So I put together a website. I'd written a couple articles, but it was not in any way uh, like a strategy. It was more just, yeah, I have some time. I have something I want that's on my mind. I'll write it down. Maybe I can get it published. And then the newsletter as well start, came about maybe a year in. And I found it was a bit of a lag time, but I started finding companies reaching out to me and saying, you could help me or I, have, I need some help. Of course, it was never 100% or even 75% of people who contacted me led to a project, but that's the nature of sales. Mm-hmm. I also had cases where conferences would say, are you interested in speaking at our conference? Or I read this article or I read something you wrote or I heard you on a podcast. And that's really, your points are really interesting. And I think I also had the advantage of being fairly independent, right? I'm not selling, yeah. I'm selling myself to some degree, but I'm not selling a product and, and speaking about the market from the perspective of this is the product. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think, for example, one of the things I do now, moderate panels, it's kind of a unique position to be able to moderate a panel when you're in an independent position like this. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, so taking it back to, I want to key in on yeah. optics a little bit. Yeah. And before we pressed record, we were talking about how I've worked with JCI's three analytics platforms since Panoptics, but yep. I don't have a lot of knowledge about what happened there. So will you kind of take us yeah. through your experience? I would say that it was a very good experience. I tend to, to see it as really a story of a large company that's very much a hardware, equipment, cap- capital-driven, a lot of sales of capital equipment. That was the core business. Service, the trucks you see driving around, another core business. And those are really, if you look at even today, building management companies, controls, HVAC, probably fire and security, and lighting is, is maybe a little less service-oriented. But all of them are very, very focused on those upfront capital expenditures and then a service-type agreement to keep it running. And what we were doing was really very different. It was software as a service. It was data that will allow you to maybe extend the life of your equipment, maybe reduce the operating costs you have. And it's tough in a large, I mean, at that time, JCI was a $40 billion company. They've, they've since spun off the battery business, the automotive interiors business. They bought Tyco. So I think they're around $30 billion now. It's still just one of the, I think, 100 biggest companies in the world. 
And mm-hmm. I think Honeywell would be on that list, 100 biggest. Siemens, definitely. Um, Carrier Train, maybe not anymore now that or well, Train is independent. Carrier will be independent. But these are massive companies. I mean, they're all billions in revenue, maybe all above 10 billion even. So it's a difficult thing to do because you have a lot of operational or organizational inertia of this is how we do things. And I'll be the first to admit that the smart building story, I'm very high on long-term the need for smart buildings. But I also recognize that if you're running a building today, there can be challenges in converting from we buy equipment, we fix it on a scheduled basis, and we repair things or replace things when they need to be repaired and replaced. Switching into let's use software to help us reduce all those costs, change how we do things, it's not an overnight thing. I mean, that kind of brings us, one of the things we want to talk about is the iPhone platform and then the smart building platform. And I don't like that comparison just because even just the transition looks completely different where you actually can go buy an iPhone and all the data is stored to the cloud if you enable it. And you can buy a new iPhone and really you can just convert over within a couple hours, depending on how fast your internet is and how fast you can do all those things. And with a building, it's just so much different. It was a good learning experience. I think the product itself was a pretty strong product. I mean, one of my colleagues was building a fault detection product and we were at the same time kind of at the early nascent stages of fault detection and dealing with a lot of questions like, how is this different than a VAS alarm? How, right. What's the difference between a rule-based fault and a, a kind of a statistical-based or statistical analysis-driven fault? And some of those questions I think are still happening, but I think it, it's interesting that all of the big companies have analytics platforms like this But I think in general, and this is just what I've seen as an outside observer, they all struggle to some degree with how do we really fit this into our current business model? How do we transition people? We see the future and we know we want to be a part of it and we know we need to be a part of it, but we aren't really sure exactly how do we get from point A to point B. Totally. Yeah. And so for people that don't know, like Joe said, Panoptics was kind of an overlay software over the top of the BAS. It sounds like there were also, and this kind of gets into the iPhone comparison, yeah. there were also many other apps. And so yeah. you're bringing data into this central repository. And I think now they call it Data Vault or something like that, which I don't like that name at all. But it sounds like there were a bunch of other apps. And was the App Store concept something that was on the roadmap for Panoptics? There was a fully functional App Store. And I think... There must have been 25, 30, 35 apps. Some vendors had multiple apps, though. So it wasn't 20, 25, 30 actual vendors. I remember we actually had great feedback from the vendors because the problem we were solving... So one, you're putting a gateway of some kind. It could be different depending on what your setup in your buildings was, but you had a gateway that sent all the data to the cloud. So we needed that, and any of these companies that have their own platform need that because you're running apps in the cloud. But once you have the data in the cloud, you can, through APIs, make it available to anyone. So the concept was actually very similar to what Apple is doing. You know, once you have an Apple ID, once you have an Apple phone, you can go in and any other vendor can put an app on there and it will use your contacts if it wants. It will use previous locations if you enable it or let it and it's designed to do that. So all of that worked really well. I think that the, the areas that were somewhat challenging were... One, a lot of the apps were not things that you can get for free or you can buy for a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. These were more enterprise grade apps. And also, if you're used to buying products and services from Johnson Controls or Honeywell or Siemens or any of these companies, going online and just using a credit card to buy is just a different way of buying. And I don't know that we fully appreciated the fact that people aren't 
necessarily just going to make that switch. But the vendors themselves loved it because the problem we were solving for them was they don't need to worry about how do we get the data out of the building, which is a huge problem. Then the cybersecurity issues or the story or the concern there was not nearly as great. I actually think that is a very legitimate concern and having a vendor like a JCI or any of these large vendors to some degree solving the cybersecurity piece or being more confident or being able to be perceived as more confident in the eyes of the building owners. You're JCI, you can invest in cybersecurity, you're able to spend the money that's required versus a small startup that may take security seriously, but may just not have the same resources. It seems like that story or that value proposition gets stronger, but just figuring out how do you really do the buying and the selling and the transactions, I think is still to some degree an open question. And I don't know that anyone, there are definitely other companies that have launched platforms. Maybe there's a way you can get around around that. I would also say there are some companies that simply focus on getting data out of each building, getting it to the cloud, having an API. And you really just pay almost like a data as a service model, where Mm -hmm. if you're the vendor, you can go to them and say, can we pay you to bring the data to the cloud so that we can then sell the combined offering to our end customer? That makes sense. Or the end customer might say, we want to buy just the ability to get our data into the cloud. Once it's in the cloud, we can then go select vendors we want. So there's still a yeah. variety of, of, I think, models that n- not, no single model has taken over. Whereas if you look at phones, there is a model for we want to develop mobile apps. It's not like, oh, we have a completely different concept of doing this. And it's called, we're going to develop our own phone that you can buy to use <laughs> our app. I mean, no one's going to do that. Right. I don't think. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, that we'll get to that. I don't data wanna, yeah. layer concept in a little bit. The reason I wanted to bring up Panoptics is because what year was this? What year was this? Yeah, so this was, deployed? I mean, I started. 2011. I think a lot of the planning happened before that. 2011, 13, 14. Okay. 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. Forgot to count. Yeah. I wanted to bring that up because there are platforms out there that are announcing app stores. They're announcing these marketplaces. And I think there's a lot of reaction that's kind of like, finally, or it's like these companies are being very innovative by offering this marketplace. But if you look back, it's the idea has been around for a long time. Right. And the challenges that come with the idea have been around a long time. What I'm thinking about is if I see a new marketplace pop up, I'm thinking, man, have they learned from the ones that have come before? Right. So be interested to hear what you what you're seeing on that. It's a good question. And you could argue that just the Niagara framework is maybe the first or one of the first that has kind of this idea of a marketplace, even if it's not as much of a transactional store, if you will. And it's just the ability to, to build and develop apps. Um, in terms of has anyone learned? I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. I think one thing to learn certainly is just, and I tell this to really everyone I work with or I just meet, this market, it's difficult to accelerate sales cycles and having an easy transaction, right? So one of the things about the app store that's great, or really any computer, like consumer software for your computer, it's very easy to buy. It's very easy to purchase, whereas it wasn't necessarily so easy to do 10 years ago, right? You had to buy a disc. I remember when I had, you know, the first Mac I owned was probably 2005, 2006, you actually went to the store and bought a CD and you had to load it up and do everything. And it was, you know, people talk about Windows updates being so painful. You don't have to do any of that. So it's really easy to transact now. Within the building space, the smart building space, I don't know that making an easy transaction or a complex transaction is really the difference between you buy now, you buy later. I really think there's a whole host of other challenges. If you go down the list of 
I'm a buyer, I'm a building owner, building operator, why I'm not buying. I think there's a, a lot of other reasons why an individual might say, I'm not quite ready to pull the trigger yet. So I think, yes, there's probably some learning. I don't know that that alone is going to put you into that hockey stick of growth if, if you're a vendor. Got it. Yeah, I think that's a really great segue to what I kind of wanted to dive into next. Sure. So you wrote a really great piece for PropMoto about how to get started with a smart building solution, how to get started with a smart building strategy. And that really hit home for me because I was a energy efficiency consultant, analyst right. consultant before joining NREL. And one of the things that we struggled with most was we, we would see building owners and they would, I called it like a whack-a-mole approach or yeah. shiny object syndrome is another way that I like to call it where you, you, a vendor knocks on the yeah. door, a nice salesperson knocks on the door yep. and you're like, oh, um, I like your message. I like your product. Let's do a pilot. And then two weeks later, another vendor walks in the door and you're like, oh, I like your message. Let's do a pilot. Yep. Yep. And this is just what I've seen. And all of a sudden you have 30 pilots going on and no one pilot is strategic in the grand scheme of things. Right. And all of them kind of die on the vine. And that's a really cynical story, but that's kind of what I've seen as far as what happens when there isn't a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you see when owners jump right in without a strategy? It is a good segue. The challenge with that, so one, there's so many vendors. I remember even a couple of years ago writing an article. There's so many vendors. It's very fragmented. The vendors all have been historically flush with cash for salespeople, for marketing. So you will hear from them. And I've talked to vendors, or not vendors, uh, building operators, facility managers, let's say, energy managers, where it sounds like on a daily basis they're getting calls, or even at least on a weekly basis. If you work for a company that's known, either Fortune 500 or a, a large commercial real estate firm, it's just known who to call. You can find people on LinkedIn now easy enough. You're getting a lot of phone calls. And there's this, uh, I think I, I described it as kind of the vendor churn issue where you as a buyer of technology may get to a point where you say, I'm ready to do a, a formal procurement process. And maybe when I say formal, it's going to vary how formal you are in your organization. But you're going to have a, a list of vendors that you've already vetted. You've already said they at least check enough of the boxes that I want to dive deeper. You go through that process. That could take a month. It could take three months. It could take a little longer if your company just has other procurement requirements. By the end of that, you might find, oh, there's three other vendors that have just launched new products, or I've just heard about them. Do I restart the process? Do I, I not? So the challenge there, I would say, you lead to that, do I need to restart the process? If you don't necessarily already have a really solid grounding of this is the problem we're trying to solve, and you to figure out this is the problem we're trying to solve, it takes a lot of internal work, a lot of internal discussion, different stakeholders, different teams, understanding what does success look like? Are we really just trying to save energy? I mean, one of the examples I gave in the article, talking, I interviewed a variety of different folks both operators of buildings, some vendors, just to get their perspective. But one that really hit home for me, and it's not energy specific, but it was a director of facilities. He was saying that they like leak detection software, not because they're worried about wasting water. Wasting water, water's pretty cheap. I mean, obviously, from an environmental stewardship point of view, they don't want to waste water. The goal is not to just waste water. But the more destructive part of the business, or the more destructive thing to the business is, if it leaks in an area, we may have to close that space. If we're renting the space out, what that means the tenants are disrupted because they can't be in the space. That also means a lot of equipment was damaged. A lot of things were damaged. We have to fix all that. That's a really big problem for us, not only from a cost point of view, more so, I mean, it's more costly than just wasting water, but also just, you know, we're serving our tenants by giving them a good place to work, usually work, uh, maybe live. 
this is really disruptive. So we want to avoid that at all costs. So just looking for leak detection, you might, if you just said, oh, leak detection, that's the new thing. We want leak detection. You might look at all these vendors when really if you did a little bit more kind of work internally to say, what's the real problem here we're trying to solve? You would only look at the companies that can help you not only just say a month later, you waste a lot of water, but actually detect leaks in real time or near real time and actually say, you know, here's where the leak is. Here's what you need to do. The detailed level of how actionable is this? How insightful is this? You can compare platform to platform. Yeah. And in the article you gave maybe three or four other specific examples of use cases that you've seen people select. I think one of them was utility bills. Yep. So if all you're trying to do is analyze your utility bills, that's a totally different procurement process than right. leak detection or right, right. you know, a or, broad platform like yeah. Panoptics like we were yep. just talking about. Yep. Or something more energy analytics focused. You know, maybe we want to do cost analysis to actually not just look at our bills month to month and figure out where are there some abnormalities. You maybe want to invest in deploying meters or connecting to existing meters, pulling out much deeper analytics could get into even fault detection. You know, we're looking to reduce our HVAC spend. We're looking to extend equipment life. We want to reduce the capital we spend on our HVAC systems in general across our enterprise. This software, we believe, will help us do that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've kind of struggled with when I've, like, I've seen a lot of pilots happen, for instance. Yeah. And one of the things I want to get your perspective on is when you advise an owner, for instance, they're going to do a pilot and say it's leak detection that they're they're going to pilot. They've selected their platform or they've selected their technology. And I think the question I have is how do you make sure that initial pilot aligns well with their long-term strategy? So their short-term strategy, and I'm just making up this owner because I don't know yeah. them, but their short-term strategy is I want to dip my toe in the water, dip my toe in the smart building water, <laughs> essentially, and detect a leak, right? Yeah. But I believe like the long-term strategy is fully digital facility operations, right? Yeah. And so if you're starting with one little use case, how do you get to that long-term yeah. total transformation? Yeah. I think that what I hear from some of the leaders in the space, and these are people even that I just know I've met, I keep in touch with because it's great to compare notes, but they're not necessarily clients of Amador Consulting. I tend to see a little bit more focus on understanding what the long-term strategy is or understanding the business dynamics first, even before you start saying, let's identify problems we want to solve. So that can be, you know, if we're a buy and hold commercial real estate firm, you're already kind of embedded into the way you do business, going to be more concerned with the long-term. If you're looking to reposition an asset, in general, your business model is buy an asset that is distressed in some way or just has very low occupancy, but you believe there's upside by adding putting capital into it, improving it in a variety of ways, and then selling it again in five, six years, you're probably going to look at shorter payback periods because really you want to realize the payback in three, four years maybe. But you also are probably going to be more focused on, does this really hit my bottom line or does this drive more tenant activity, right? More people leasing the space. Because really, at the end of the day, when you're selling a building, if you bought it, you bought it and then five years later, you want to sell it, the metrics, the NOI, I mean, that's the number that people are going to look at in terms of valuation. So you need to get more tenants in the space. If you understand kind of those bigger, broader dynamics of how our company wants to function, I mean, I'm sure you do understand those, but figuring out a way to connect your smart building investments to that. And that's not to say we can't do anything else, but I think it's to say there should at least be some linkage. So 
right now, if you look at a lot of solutions in the market, the reason energy savings continues to be pretty prevalent as a value proposition and a way to build a business case is because it's just really clear. It's accepted that certain types of solutions will save certain amounts of energy. There's great research from various labs like NREL, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab is probably the other one that, that does a lot of this, where you can point to it and most people accept if I deploy a solution like this, I'll save five, eight percent, maybe a little more than eight percent. And you can build out a business case. It's trusted, it's believed, it's not challenged. Whereas if you look at does this really make our tenants more productive or not? Obviously, that has a bigger benefit if you can get every tenant in a space to be slightly more productive. The overall you know, revenue difference is greater or impact, revenue impact is greater than we've saved 10% of energy, but it's just far more nebulous. It's just more difficult. So even if you're a firm that really you want to get more tenants into this building and you want to look at investments that get more tenants into the building, I think there are ways to look at energy savings solutions that maybe make the business case make it app, you know, give you the appetite for that business case, but they also allow you to check some of these other boxes. And, and maybe it's a little open-ended just how much is it going to help us, but there's some trust or some belief that they will. And, and if they don't, it's not like we've wasted money. Hmm. I like that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. The other thing I was going to mention, um, kind of the premise, I don't think I really touched on this in the article because it was already, this was actually the first article I wrote for PropMoto. And I remember talking to the editor when I pitched the article and he said, longer is better. And I thought, this is the first publication I've heard from in years that has said longer is better, but I still didn't want it to be too, too long. I agreed with that, by the way. I, I thought it was excellent. And yeah. I liked the length and the yeah. interviews were great. I've noticed other publications, which are great, again, and good place to publish, in general have been trying to get things shorter, not half as long as they were two years ago, but there's definitely a little more push to be shorter. But I didn't put this in because it was just even longer, but really what came out of, or where this idea came from. I, last fall, I went to a couple conferences. I was speaking. I, there was one in Australia. I was actually doing a workshop one day and then speaking um, other days. And there were people at the workshop, some of them, workshop plus just sideline conversations, who said, you know, I, I'm here, I'm speaking, it's a good event, but I've been here for three years now, four years now. And I got to tell you, I'm happy to talk about what we're doing and what we're investing in, but I'm personally not getting a lot out of it anymore. I mean, I know I'm mm -hmm. a leader. I know I'm at the forward edge or the cutting edge of smart building development. So I'm giving, and it wasn't like a quid pro quo. I only want to give if I get. It was more just, I don't know that I, I'm moving ahead. I'm happy to speak. But at some point, it's like it's just becoming kind of repetitive. On the other side, though, you see people attending the event who said, this is great. I don't know where to start, though. And so there's a gulf. And I think that gulf might be widening even. I 100% agree with you. Wow. Yeah. Just so the, light bulb moment for me. So thank no, you. no, I know. Yeah. I mean, the goal here, though, was for people who are in that, we don't know where to start. We don't know what mm -hmm. to do. Does this at least help you? Maybe it can be something as simple as take it to people who you work with to say, you know, guys, there's somebody who wrote an article that he might have some ideas here. He might be a good example. Or it could be something more deeper than that. Like, oh, this is actually a process we want to follow or some tips that we want to follow. Yeah, well, whoever is listening that hasn't read this article, I'll put it in the show notes. It does offer a process to follow, which is actionable, which everyone loves, which is great. Yep. So one thing that I, when I was reading it, knowing your business, I was also wondering what vendors themselves can do. And where I'm coming from there is, I think when you're selling a, a software product or any sort of product, you are happy if the owner is buying, obviously. Yep. But if the building owner is jumping in without a strategy, uh, it's probably not good for anyone long term from what I've seen, because yeah. that pilot project's probably not going to work out 
in most, that's just my yeah. sense in most cases. So what can vendors do to help with strategy? Yeah. And I'll even add to that. You do find some vendors almost have um, like pilot fatigue, right? Like we've done so many pilots. A lot of the pilots, it's just kind of been, been defined to us as the first step is a pilot. I don't think pilots are a bad thing and are inherently a bad thing. I think the challenge can be piloting because you just don't know where's the next step here. We aren't sure. Let's just do a pilot. I definitely think that there are ways that vendors can offer. And I've seen some buyers of technology maybe have the goal of a pilot as part of the process, but maybe are trying to to have steps before a pilot that allow them to shortlist. It may sound counterintuitive, but if you're selling and it's a competitive procurement, it may be better for you to try to help the vendor or the, not, as the vendor help the building owner make a decision faster. It very much like you have the fail fast concept when you're building technology. Let's build something, let's do it, let's fail fast. Because if we failed faster, we've gone down that path fast. We found it's not the right way. We can come back and go down a different path. So you could apply that to as a vendor selling, you know, we want to help our clients make a decision faster. And even if they decide not to work with us, it's better that we know now than in six months because the sales team can move on. The marketing team probably isn't moving on. I mean, they're, but the sales salespeople can move on. In terms of how you do that, I mean, I've seen examples of, can we do not a pilot, but can we kind of test, like go visit some of your buildings and just give you an assessment of how much it will cost for us to implement our technology in these three buildings, let's say. And every vendor can say, this is how much it costs. You can compare them. That right there might be a really interesting stage gate, if you will, because you might be sensitive to upfront costs and you might generally know what the upfront costs are only to realize later oh, they're higher than we thought, or they're more expensive, or the timing takes too long. That could be a way to, to sh- shortlist. And then if you're doing a pilot, the pilot can be based on, one, you've already gotten to a point where you're more confident in this particular vendor. The vendors themselves might get some value out of it by understanding why they didn't get selected. That might give them feedback from the market of how to improve. Um, that's the type of question that I would get from clients. You know, a win-loss analysis. Help us understand where we're winning, where we're losing. Where we're losing deals, we want to know so we can start winning them. So I think the vendors aren't, I'm not saying be pushy. I'm not saying be, yeah, I mean, pushy is probably the best word. It's more just, can you think about a more incremental approach to get to the end state without trying to take over the process? And that can be at an early stage, I mean, you can advise on developing a strategy. Some of these vendors probably aren't going to be involved in developing the strategy. If you can be a a seat at the table, that's great. You know, you may or may not actually in in reality be a seat at the table though. But I think doing that and then thinking about how do we maybe smaller decisions more quickly, more often, that that can be helpful. One, I think that there could be a better relationship that is built. And there are all kinds of cases where, I mean, some of the best relationships I have with, with not really clients, but with facility managers are firms that when I was at JCI or at Lucid or elsewhere trying to sell to that regardless of if that worked out or didn't work out, I simply have maintained the relationship. And now, you know, I'm not really in a position of of trying to sell to them necessarily, but it was never, that's really in some ways where it started or being Hmm. a participant of of that sales cycle. Yeah. Okay. So kind of last question on, on the owner side of things and strategy side, I want to preface this with, I just started creating a list of analytics software vendors. Uh, yeah. You probably enjoy it, actually. There's 45 on my list, okay. which I, I don't know if you have something similar, but I just keep adding to it, and I just keep getting more and more surprised every time I hear about a new startup. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that whole 
marketplace and are there too many startups and why do we keep getting more startups? <laughs> yeah. And are you thinking you're kind of thinking analytics specific or I mean yeah. the 45 number sounds about right. I would say you can definitely decide where you want to draw the line of analytics versus like maybe energy reporting is the step before analytics right. is oftentimes used interchangeably with fault detection. I think that makes sense. Um, there's though definitely other analytics types of vendors that maybe do something other than just analytics that really you could argue fundamentally the software isn't so different. But yeah, I think, I mean, there probably are too many, though What I say that with a little hesitation because if you talk to all 45 of them, I think that they all see and maybe have a legitimate opportunity to be a, a, a participant in the market. I would also say that when you look at different types of buildings, asset classes, different types of ownership structures, many of them are going to focus in one, have one swim lane, if you will, not all the swim lanes. Now, I think they also organically have been kind of founded out of this idea, we have something unique to offer to the market, and that is 100% their right. And in some cases, they do have something unique to offer the market. The challenge may be they haven't figured out how to make it sound as unique as it actually is. In other cases, it could be we have a different way of getting you to the, to the same position. So we are fundamentally different, but we're, at the end of the day, getting you to the same place. Now, all that said, we have seen some startups that have merged together. We've seen some startups that uh, one buys another, smaller companies. There's a couple examples of that. I think that will happen more. I think especially now, just given that there's probably a broader economic slowdown, you know, the economic expansion we've had for 10 years is probably at its end, at least for the near term, midterm. I think that will have some impact on the ability for some of these companies to raise new rounds, might mm. lead them to have to ra raise on a longer time horizon, be a little bit more sensitive to cash or, or, or protective of their cash in the meantime. And that might lead companies to say, you know, we have no other option than to merge with this other firm. I haven't necessarily seen on the buyer side. So is this a, a VC? Is this a private equity firm that says we want to merge these companies together? I haven't seen a lot of that happen yet. I haven't heard a lot of murmurs of that happening. But I think things are moving so fast that could change. And you could argue there's an opportunity here. There's definitely some logical places I think that that, that makes sense to kind of have some of these, these tie-ups. And then I also could see the larger companies, the incumbents, the OEMs, controls, HVAC, and, and the like, say, you know, we're just opportunistically going to go buy some of these companies because we actually think there's enough upside and enough of potential IP here that, and the, the cost is, or the purchase price is going to be low enough that we might as well do it. And the purchase price now will be lower than it would have been a month or two months ago. The other side of it, though, is the buyer side, right? So I'm a facility manager, I'm a building manager. I do think their view is there's too many of these vendors. I wrote an article a couple of years ago where I talked about a lot of vendor churn, a lot of vendors, too many vendors. So I think what I'm getting at is it makes it more difficult for all the vendors when there's too many vendors because the buyers end up not making a decision rather than buying the wrong thing and then moving and buying something else a year later because it takes time to get anything in this space stood up. If you talk to all 45 vendors, you'll probably, I talk to a lot of vendors, even if I don't work with them, I see good reasons why they are there as an independent company. It's a difficult situation. I mean, I think the investors and maybe even the buyers of technology, the, the building owners, might look at the, the current economic uh, headwinds and say, this is just a great opportunity for us to wait and see what happens. You know, wait and see what <laughs> companies survive, 
what yeah. companies end up merging, what companies end up kind of closing down. I mean, I think we will in six months look back and, and see a cycle of that. Maybe not with all companies. I don't think the industry is doomed in any way, but with individual firms that could happen. Yeah, I appreciate that. I feel like you just answered that from the perspective of a product manager. That was like the perfect, you just like looked at it from all of the different angles when you answered the question. I think from the building owner, like what I've seen from the building owner is that there's that overwhelm. And when you have overwhelm, you have decision fatigue. And then when you have decision fatigue, you have delays and months and years go by without action. And again, that doesn't help anyone in the marketplace from the right. owner to the vendor to right. all of us trying to right. solve climate change. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Make the buildings work better, reduce energy, reduce carbon. Yeah, I know. Yeah. My sense is this problem is resolving itself is getting better. If we look five years ago, I've been working for myself for about four and a half years you know, within Amador Consulting. And I think it was more of the wild, wild west. If you think of it as that four years ago, four and a half years ago, I don't think that we're, what I I say in my newsletter, for example, is the market is clearly consolidating. The market has not consolidated. We're moving in the right direction. I think estimates of how long we might look back and say, yeah, we thought it would happen more quickly. But events like this, I mean, really, it's somewhat unprecedented. It's hard to forecast exactly what does this mean for these companies. Yeah, we're we're definitely in a time of uncertainty for many different reasons, but one big reason (laughs) uh, right now. Yeah. I was going to say this to later if we got to it, but um, I think this is a great place to kind of throw in the whole concept of the all-star game versus the home run derby. Yeah. So what are you seeing for, so just say we only have 45 vendors. I think there's probably more like something like 65. Yeah. I've noticed this dichotomy and this came from Rick Justice. We had a great discussion on LinkedIn about it um, a month or two back. So I'm going to try to summarize the concept, but yeah. The concept is when vendors think they're in the home run derby, they're going to try to be the platform, right? So they're going to try to swing for the fences and it's kind of me, me, me versus if vendors think they're in the all-star game, they're looking for what they can bring to the table. Right. Maybe they're a great shortstop or a great, you know, center fielder um, to kind of delay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah over make the point but if they're in the all-star game they're looking to collaborate with an open ecosystem of other tools what are your thoughts on kind of that whole dichotomy i mean i wrote a article two years ago maybe a year and a half i forget but uh i talked about this idea of the technology stack and probably this this is a theme i think that is stretched through a few different articles but this idea that a lot of companies were very much focused on the vertical full tech stack, if you will, maybe not deploying their own gateways, their own meters. I mean, though companies that have their own, at least white labeled meters and hardware, that is then there's the connection to the cloud, there's the cloud-based software, there's the analytics, there's the end you as a user can log in. So there are companies that offer that entire tech stack. I think that that model is maybe going by the wayside a little bit. In general, there may be certain verticals where it works, uh, certain companies that have been successful, but it's difficult to do that. And it's especially difficult to do that if you're trying to do that across many different types of buildings, right? So you're doing that for hospitals, you're doing that for hospitality, you're doing that for office buildings. But I think part of the reason it's difficult to do that is because there's actually now a lot of innovation at different levels. So there are companies that just have a stick on CT and the ability to get the data into the cloud. And once it's in the cloud, APIs allow you to do whatever you want with it. And that's all they do. It's even a good example of companies that do this for utility bill data. One big challenge a lot of companies 
in the building energy management space have, how do we get utility bill data when there's 3,150 some utilities and even the IOUs, there's like 200 of them. So the investor owned utilities implement green button. Well, some of them do, but they do it in a different way, every one of them. So you actually, as a vendor would have to, if you're trying to sell a building energy management solution, you might have to build a hundred or more integrations just to get the utility bill data, not even the interval data. There is now a company or multiple companies that just solve that problem. They say, we just will connect to all the utilities. We'll only do that. We'll sell to everyone. And if you're JCI and you're Siemens, you don't look at it and say, oh, well, we don't want to work with you because you work with our competitor. Because all they're doing is the piping, right? Getting the utility data. It's really a commodity and it's just become commoditized. So you have those solutions. You also have that with cybersecurity. We get your data in a secure way to the cloud and then you can do whatever you want with it. So because you have some of these emerging, what really are, you could argue, point solutions that can all fit together organically or neatly, I think it's leading other companies to say, do we really have to build that? Do we really have to build all that? I remember having conversations years ago where people said, oh, we don't want to be middleware. But some of these companies are actually just middleware. And I don't think that's a dirty word when the edge or the end is so messy, you actually can deliver some value just by turning that into a more neat and organized, the point tagging. I mean, one of the things that automated, you know, there are companies that just focus on that. We're going to help you tag all the points. Again, put it in the cloud. You can build whatever app you want on top. That doesn't have to be an app store, a marketplace that can just be, we have APIs, you can access them. We have a pricing model. So I think that the all-star game analogy is really good, is effective. It, it makes sense. Being, winning the home run derby, there have definitely been companies trying to do that in the past. I think maybe there will be companies trying to do that in the future, but I don't know. I think it's difficult. The other argument you could make is the larger OEMs, I mean, if it's going to be a home run derby, they have the big bats, right? So if you're a small company that's raised $10 million, it's kind of like Little League versus you know Barry Bonds. Hmm. Yeah. You wanted to extend that uh, analogy more. We could throw steroids into there in some way. Yeah, but, uh... yeah. I, yeah, and I, I guess uh, <laughs> I don't know baseball well enough to know a good example of like the best home run hitter that maybe is, is less controversial. But yeah, yeah, neither do I. So we're doing good at just kind of leading into the next topic here. I feel like I yeah. don't even have to lead us. The next thing I wanted to talk about was this concept of open data layer. So yeah. they are the part of the all-star game that is, you know, like you said, cleaning up the messiness at the edge, essentially. Yeah. So abstracting away all of the different protocols and yeah. different configurations of controllers. And I haven't had much direct experience with these types of firms, but it sounds like the value proposition is I'm going to hand you an API and that's going to be haystack or brick tagged data right, right. on the other end of that API. And it sounds really good from the building owner's perspective. And this is another place where we've talked about this on LinkedIn and fine detail. Yeah. Uh, and I, I read a blog post about the kind of the pros and cons of both sides. What are you seeing out there? And what do you think about these models? The model itself, I think is great. I think Haystack and Brick and anything else like it has a lot of value. It's what we need. I mean, when I talk to people who maybe are, I mean, there are definitely companies I've worked with where they are trying to learn more about the building space. They're just think of a technology provider doesn't do a lot in buildings, but thinks we have an offering in buildings. And, you know, you could look at Microsoft, they have Azure, not a client of mine. Um, they have Azure and Azure, there are definitely product features they have developed that orient very much to buildings from, you know, being able to build a digital twin on Azure, for example. So that's a type of company that might at the very early stages, call me up to say, 
we're trying to figure this space out. We're trying to understand channels to market. We're trying to understand market dynamics. We have no one in-house that knows anything about buildings. And you know, we're not sure we want to hire somebody because right now it's the strategy team figuring out this versus 10 other places we could be investing money. So you certainly have a lot of investment in open data layer. I think you need that. I think Brick and Haystack are certainly moving forward that market. I think though, it's more difficult than a lot of people maybe make it sound like. I think that's, it's not the, I'm like a, a very skeptical and just to say, this is vaporware, none of it works, it's silly, don't do it. But I also sometimes, you know, see marketing material, see presentations. And I think it just doesn't seem like it's that easy. Now, what's interesting is I have just open conversations, not so much with clients, but with just, I guess it could be a client. There's no reason why it couldn't, but with just companies that are in this space. And oftentimes I hear a variety of different things. If I just kind of aggregate everything I hear from at an event, at a meetup, on a webinar, conversation, and you hear, so it's clear to me, there are some people who have been in the space a long time that understand even far beyond my knowledge, how building automation systems work, how to connect to them, so on and so forth. And it's clear, you know, so, and they don't have an incentive to overstate the capabilities of their product. Then there are other individuals who are very strong technologists, clearly have a lot of experience building technology, but maybe don't have a lot of experience in buildings and what it's like in buildings. So you would think the people who are in the buildings a lot would be very, very, maybe measured is a word in terms of how easy this actually is. And the people who are the technologists would be a little bit more, oh, you know, this is a problem only tech can solve and we can solve it. And we have solved it. But I don't actually think that's the dichotomy I see. It's just, which makes it difficult because you talk to some individuals or companies or people at companies or you hear from them and they kind of go through, this is why this is a difficult problem. Here are some of the things we've done to make it simpler to get data, to, ha- to offer the open data um, in the cloud by API, you know, offer Haystack for your building, regardless of what your building is. So on, on, you see that and you think, okay, yeah, I agree with them because what they're saying at least makes sense because I know I've seen those problems in real buildings that I've worked with. But then at the same time, you sometimes talk to people in that same boat who say, yeah, we hired a developer and within two days, every building we connected to, we automatically could tag all the points. And it was just, you know, and it's like, you think like, oh, I mean, how? It's enough of a technical discussion that, or it's something that they're kind of sensitive about talking about because they see it as being some IP to the business. So that's, I think, what makes it really difficult to kind of sort through what's real, what's not. Additionally, when you look across the existing building landscape, there are buildings that have pneumatics that are, you know, a control system from 30 years ago, connecting and, and getting that data into the cloud just in general is going to be more difficult than this building has a two-year-old Siemens or JCI or Honeywell or Allerton or whatever it is system. And if you as a vendor have only connected to those one or two-year-old systems, you might, from your knowledge, might see this is actually pretty easy, pretty doable. And maybe your business models, we only want to connect to those buildings. We, we actually don't want to touch buildings that are much older. You're being 100% transparent when you see, say how easy it is. And other competitors of yours might say, well, yeah, but our business is universities. And we just do a lot of business already in universities. And yeah, there's a lot of university buildings out there that have older control systems. And we're not going to tell them, no, we're not going to do business with you. Because one, they already have a large contract with us. They like us. And if we told them, no, we don't want to do more business with you, not only would we not get the revenue, but that client might say, oh, you're letting me down. Do I need to go find a new vendor? I mean, that's kind of a dynamic that once you get to trusted vendor status and do really good work for a vendor, that can be just a great, great you know, client for you for a long time and, and feed yeah. you a lot of value. So, I mean, the open data concept, I mean, I wholly support it. I think um, 
as the standards mature more and, and maybe more they're found more in the market, that might sort some of this out because it'll be a little easier to say, can you get all my data into the cloud tagged under the, 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 the framework or the standard of Haystack? And you could actually just let each vendor to the point we talked about with pilots pick five vendors or 10 vendors, whatever it is, say each of you go connect to each of these buildings and you'll actually get a sense of who, who can do it and who can. And it's an area though, I think that more discussion about it and more talking about it is a good thing because one, people understand the core, why it's so difficult. And then more people have that kind of base level of knowledge of this is why it's difficult. And these are the things to look out for that make me more educated as a buyer or as a developer of software. Yeah, these the what came out of it for me. Number one was the building owners need to understand the questions to ask for these types of solutions yeah. because you could easily overpromise them so easily because they sound so good. Anyone that's done yeah. an, an analytics project knows that the hardest thing is getting the data out yeah. of all the systems that it's currently in. And for someone to come in and say, "I'm going to make that problem go away," that sounds really great. It's right. just that we have to understand the questions to ask. And it kind of ties back to the strategy conversation because a lot of the FDD vendors that, sorry, that's fault detection diagnostics vendors that have added their two cents into that conversation, they've all come and said, well, you have to understand what you're going to do with the data. So Haystack is not something where you can just add some tags and now it's perfectly modeled for whatever future application you want to do with it, right? So understanding that use case is another you know question that owners need to be need to be asking right. of these you know open data layer yeah. vendors i mean it gets back to not to plug the article what we were talking about earlier i mean it gets back to kind of figuring out what's the problem here you're trying to solve start with that and then figure out how to resolve or, or solve the problem right okay we had about five minutes ish yeah I wanted to hit the, and we were kind of touching on it just now, but automated point tagging. So you emailed me a couple of weeks ago and we kind of started this email chain. Yeah. It's another thing that's kind of coming along with the open data layer, right? So right. there's a lot of companies that are pushing, are becoming the open data layer company. And they're also developing this product inside of that, which is I'm going to tag your data and it's going to take uh, I've seen a lot of different claims <laughs> lately, but it's going to take anywhere from an hour <laughs> to four yeah. hours. And uh, we've had a, a lot of great discussion around it. Yeah. Um, but I think what your email says is you're talking to people that say, like some people say it can't be done. And then you have other conversations where they're like, yeah. oh, we cracked the code. We can automate this yeah. in two seconds. And it kind of fits in. So I think we even had a great LinkedIn discussion about this where I, th I think it's, I mean, a lot of, your LinkedIn discussions are, there's like 30 people that are participating, which I've never seen that level of engagement, at least within our industry around discussions. I mean, obviously there, are, you can find discussions on LinkedIn that go on for days, mm -hmm. but this was one. And I think it's, it's really one of the, the great, great services to the industry, just because getting people to engage and talk about these things is exactly what I was talking about earlier, where more transparency, more discussion, more, more kind of visibility. I tend to think of it as very linked with the open data piece because if you want to offer an open data layer or in the cloud the ability to get your data in a standardized haystack format let's just say to give an example you really need the ability to take whatever you have today in all the buildings and turn it into haystack tagged tag data so but i mean the email i sent you i think i was reading something you had written just kind of talking about this issue and i said i'll admit i'm I don't know that I have a, I mean, as much as I know about the space, as much as I live and breathe this space, I don't know 
how what necessarily is actually doable versus not. I mean, there's people out there I've talked to that clearly know what they're talking about, clearly are experts in the space that have said, you know, it's a day, it's half a day. It, I think really the, the guidance I can give is if you hear that and you're actually buying software, really just dig in on what do you mean it's a day? Like what is a day? Is that you can get all the energy points, all the meters into the building? Can you just discover how many points there are and go through and name them? That doesn't really solve all the problems because you really need to know, is that a set point, a temperature set point? Is that damper position? If you can name it whatever you want in a day, that's great, but you don't just want to name it whatever you want to name it. You actually want to know what it is and then give it a name that allows it to be used more broadly and universally in the future. So it's a tough one. I I mean, I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad there's people talking about it on LinkedIn. I think even if you go into that LinkedIn discussion, I mean, it it was clear there was no consensus here. Yeah. Different people have different views of of how this works. I tend to maybe trust the feedback I get from individuals who clearly have been in the industry for a longer period of time. And that could be a couple years, 10 years, 20 years, and actually can point to a lot of buildings they've connected to just because there's so many different types of systems and vintages, really. It's not just types of building automation systems or types of other operational systems. It's also the vintages. I mean, a 10-year-old Siemens system and a one-year-old Siemens system really could look different. Yeah, so it's difficult. I, I tend, though, to kind of listen to them a little bit more than we've developed something new and you know emergent and really revolutionary. I'm not going to say on the podcast or anywhere else, you're wrong, that's not true. It's more just a, you know, maybe a little more skeptical of that, just given that there's probably a lot you haven't seen yet. Right. Well, I know you wanted kind of my thoughts on this topic. Yeah, too, I would, so yeah. Maybe, maybe this is a good time to kind of, kind yeah, of let yeah. you know what they are. Let everyone know, yeah. So first of all, in that discussion on LinkedIn, I kind of went through, there were 90 plus something like that, 90 comments on there. So I went through and I, I kind of categorized them into three themes because I'm going to write a piece on this um, for Nexus. But the first theme is it's not a day, it's not an hour, it's six months and a day or an hour. Yeah. So there's, for most buildings, especially with growing cybersecurity claim, or fears and issues, there are a lot of, there's a lot of upfront work that anyone has to do to even get access to the data to begin to even start automated tagging. And so this came from a guy named Keith, Keith Gibson. He basically said, no matter what the claim is, it adds six months to it because there's, tons and tons of meetings and getting everyone on the yeah. same page that goes into making the networking connection, opening the firewall, like all these things that are required to even begin. Um, so I thought that was a really good good point. Very good point, yeah. Another one is it depends on the type of analytics you're trying to do. I think with these claims, a lot of people have chimed in and said, yeah, you can get data into a dashboard and start looking at data really quickly, but to go through and automate the point tagging for a full FDD application with very few false positives, well, that's a completely different use case, like we were yeah. talking about earlier, than just throwing some data into um, a Tableau or Power BI dashboard, right? Yep. Yep. The third theme is it completely depends on how the data is stored in the control system. And it sounds like you, know, you were hinting at that as well, but. My original post was a screenshot of a controller at a local campus that has yeah. set points that are hard coded into the, the code on the controller. Yeah. So nobody's going to be able to automate that, those right. p- particular points. That's just not automatable. You can't see that data 
from right. the analytics platform. So those are the kind of the three big themes yep. that popped up. But then we're actually, NREL is developing a paper on, on this topic as well, and I had the chance to review it. Um, I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. And there's actually been quite a few research that's been done, yeah. uh, research projects that have been done in this area. And it, it seems like there's kind of two approaches so far. There's looking at the point name. Um, yep, yep. So you can develop rules around what the point names have stored in them. So if it says DAT, you're always going to tag that as a discharge air temperature. That's an example yep. of a rule. Yep. Um, there's also machine learning algorithms that can kind of do that same thing. They can take yep. in a set of test data that's already tagged perfectly and apply those same tags yep. to the new new set of data that you expose it to. Um, yep. And then there's actually also machine learning algorithms that are then looking at the actual trend data itself. Yep. So I think you said in your email, um, if you see a piece of data that's 72 degrees between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, well, that's probably a zone temperature set point. Right, right. So these algorithms can start to learn things like that about the actual trend data they're seeing. So yeah. I just kind of wanted to throw that out there as basically all I know at this point. Yeah. Because I feel like it's yeah. good to kind of throw that out there and people can tell me if I'm wrong. People can add to uh, yeah. my understanding. And there's a lot of people that probably haven't thought about it. Probably that would be a good intro for them. Oh, I think it's a great intro. It's what I'm seeing as well. I, I think uh, it's really what we need to kind of advance the discussion um, mm -hmm. because people will add, I mean, what you write, people responding to this podcast will say, I agree, but did you think of this? And, and that's really, yeah. that. yeah, I agree. Cool. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up. We got through pretty much everything that I was hoping to get through. Yeah. As we kind of conclude this, I just want to say thanks for everything you do. Thanks for um, your newsletter. I think it's a great service to the industry. And I'll put that in the show notes uh, for everyone. Yeah. And thanks for coming on the show. No, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, no, I agree. Your newsletter, uh, I enjoy. I'm really impressed that you can write it once a week. Uh, I mean, keep it up. It's it's good. I mean, mine's every other month. Um, so, but no, yeah. it, it's great. And I'm happy to be here. Happy to you know participate. Yeah, this is a good discussion. Well, thanks, Joe, and uh, yeah. talk to you soon. Thanks, James. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.